Hey pals! Before we jump into this episode, I'm so excited to let you know that today's episode is actually being brought to you in partner with Anato. I am beyond excited to share Anato with you all because it's something I am so passionate about and use literally every day. Anato is a regenerative lifestyle brand that's based in Santa Cruz and offers skincare and workshops and so many other resources. It uses renewable resources to create their fantastic skincare products that you can feel so good about using because they're all about sustainability and even further than that, regeneration of our planet. The packaging is phenomenal, probably my favorite skincare packaging I have ever used or seen, and it's all zero waste and so easy to use. I stand by their products 100% because I love them so much and I use them every single day and I am not a big skincare person, at least I wasn't until I started using Anato because I love it. My personal favorites are the Tree Bomb Rescue and Relief, which is always in my bag or in my pocket, easy to grab because I use it so often, and the Kelp Forest Face Mask, which quickly became a necessity in my weekly self-care nights. Because Anato is so amazing and I love water women so much, they are giving us a code, a special code to get 20, yes, 20% off your purchase from them. You can get this purchase on all their best sellers by using code WATERWOMEN when you're purchasing your new favorite regenerative skincare at anatolife.com. That is A-N-A-T-O-L-I-F-E dot com and using code WATERWOMEN, W-A-T-E-R, W-O-M-E-N. I cannot wait for you guys to, to try out Anato because I know you'll fall in love with it as fast as I did. Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hey pals! Welcome back to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. I get to talk to another whale girl today, which I am always excited to do. Anytime I get to talk about whales or cetaceans at all, I am super, super stoked to do it, obviously. You guys all know how big of a whale girl I am, and I love getting to talk about it, and I love learning new things about them, which in this field, there is always something new to learn. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you guys. Emma is amazing, and we had so much fun recording this episode. You'll hear us. I left a lot of the the bloopers in this episode because I just had so much fun recording it that I thought you guys should get to hear the fun as well. So I won't keep you for too long. We can jump right in with Emma. Well, welcome back to the Water Women podcast. Today I'm joined by a fellow cetacean lover and I'm super excited to kind of geek out all about whales and dolphins and everything today. So how about you introduce yourself, give us your full name and the pronouns you use. Hi, so my name's Emma Longden and I use the pronouns she and her. Perfect, well, so glad to have you on today. I can't wait to talk all about you and what you do because what you're doing right now, the studies you're doing are so interesting. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm currently doing a bit of acoustics work with a bottlenose dolphin. Yeah. Which is insane. That must be so fun. How did you kind of end up doing this? Did you always love the ocean or did you find it later on in life? Um, so I feel like in terms of my interest in dolphins, it, it probably stemmed from quite early when I was 
quite young. Um, so my interest in dolphins probably came quite early on in life when I was quite young. Um, and my parents adopted me a, a dolphin in up in the Murray Firth in Scotland, which I feel like when I was a kid, that was quite a thing that a, a lot of like girls, the, my friends, their parents have adopted them a dolphin. Um, but for me, I feel like it kind of stuck and I got a bit <laughs> obsessed. So <laughs> here I still am. Um, but I think more, I was sort, sort of interested in them and I knew like being a marine biologist was a career, but I think it was in my teenage years when I, when I really wanted to go into like science and research. And um, it was mainly from like a couple of books I read actually um, about other scientists. So one of them was the book Death at Sea World and it, it sort of has two storylines. Have you read I that? Literally, I literally am looking at that book right over there. Like it's on my bookshelf. That is so funny. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really good book. So for anyone that hasn't read it, it the chapters alternate between stories of, of killer whales in captivity and also of Naomi Rose as she was doing her PhD. Um, in British Columbia on the northern resident killer whales and and I really liked the sort of excitement that came with the science and the ad adventure that, that she had so that was really inspiring for me and the other book was sort of similar it was um called To Touch a Wild Dolphin by Rachel Smoker mm -hmm. um and that similarly was about her PhD years when she went from America down to Australia to, to study the dolphins in Shark Bay and again it was really like before it was um, a big tourist attraction so she would like hitchhike to Shark Bay and camp there by the dolphins and I think those two books were, for me were really sort of influential and I liked the idea of the, the adventure that came with studying dolphins. So it was pretty natural for you like it's something that you kind of always knew you wanted and just have loved dolphins forever. Yeah I, I think so I think like friends and like family members have always known me as that person that's just obsessed with dolphins and it was always gonna happen. <laughs> It's funny how like when you're younger there's like things like that can either like stick or be completely like thrown away like you could have like gotten that adopted dolphin and been like oh that's really cool and then gone on to do something completely different but you were like yeah oh my god this is it this is what I want to do. Yeah definitely like I think people you know when you speak to people now they're like what are you doing they're like oh I used to really want to be like a marine biologist when I was a kid but for some reason with me it just stuck. <laughs> I know I feel that like whenever I tell people that's what I do they're like oh I always wanted to do that and I'm like you should have it's so fun like it's so cool. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and I can definitely see why dolphins kind of like stuck with you because they are so cool. So did you find going through your undergrad where you knew what you wanted to do it was almost like tedious to do your undergrad because it was kind of like you had to get all the general stuff out of the way uh yeah I definitely think there was a bit of that so I did marine biology at, at the University of Plymouth in it's in the southwest of England and it, it's an, an amazing course it was really really great and I enjoyed it so much um, and we covered loads of different material you know from like the rocky shore to like um Sort of deeper sea habitats and um, invertebrates vertebrates a bit of everything but I feel like I was always waiting for that opportunity to, to study dolphins a bit more and there was one lecturer there Dr Claire Rambling who I really got on with and I, I worked with her she supervised me for my undergraduate project and, and she was sort of like the, the marine mammal lady at, at Plymouth um, so yeah I think like by the time in third year we came around to studying vertebrates everyone was like oh Emma will be glad now we're studying dolphins. <laughs> I love that I was kind of the same way like as listeners know I'm a huge whale girl so like sitting through like fish lectures and especially like invertebrate lectures I was like when are we gonna get to the cool stuff like these are really <laughs> yeah. cool I just want to study whales 
so it always kind of like and especially like the general education courses like even just like chemistry and like all this stuff that I had to take I was like why am I doing this (laughs) you really have to kind of like put your mind to it and be like no this is gonna benefit me in the future yeah because it really does like it comes into play more often than you think and like every so often I'll catch myself be like oh okay that's why I needed that for sure yeah definitely like things like the maths and the more like physical parts of, of marine biology um definitely come in one day so yeah you definitely need those so why did you choose to do your undergrad there what was appealing about it to you did you was it close to where you grew up did you grow up near the water like how like how did it kind of come to be you in undergrad there yeah so I actually grew up pretty much in the middle of England so in <laughs> in Derbyshire so I live sort of just below Manchester if people sort of know where that is um so Plymouth University is in the southwest um so it was about a six hour drive um which I quite liked I think when I was 18 the idea of like moving sort of further away from home and so I didn't really grow up by the sea but I think it was always a place that you know we went whenever we was on holiday it was to places by the coast and I really enjoyed sort of being by the sea um so yeah in terms of Plymouth it was I loved my time there it was just the nicest place ever I think to be a student it was it was like a city but it wasn't too big and it was by the sea by really nice beaches in Cornwall and just the department for marine biology was is has quite a good reputation it is a really a really great place to go and do a degree that's awesome so what are you doing now where did this take you yeah so I graduated from Plymouth in in the summer of 2018 so about two and a half years ago. Um, I began a master's degree in marine mammal science at the University of St Andrews in September of last year, so I'm about halfway through that. Um, but in a couple of years between that, I, I worked on a, a few different projects. I did a bit of field work, um, did a bit of sort of data processing and, and, and analysis. Um, so I got experience in, in a few different areas before I started my master's degree. Nice. So what is your master's? What's your like main project focus? Yeah, so the master's in St Andrews, it's in marine mammal science, and um, it's mainly a taught master's, so we have the three semesters, and the first two um, are all taught classes, so I'm in the second one now, um, and it, it, I think it has quite a reputation for being being quite hard, there's a lot of statistics <laughs> and coding. Um, <laughs> all the so fun things. Young, yeah, definitely, so, um, and I, I can definitely confirm it lives up to that reputation, <laughs> Um so I'm in the middle of the, the second taught semester now. Well, not really in the middle, just begun. But um, yeah, and then the final semester, sort of um, from about May onwards, is all our own research project. Um, so for that, I'm working with Professor Peter Tayak and collaborating with the, the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program and having a look at a bit of a look at um, bottlenose dolphins in Sarasota. Oh, cool. Are you guys looking at anything like specific about them? Like you mentioned earlier acoustics, which I can't wait to dive more into because I love acoustics. So is that what your project's kind of focusing on or is it like an overarching project? Uh, Yeah, so it is still focused on acoustics. Um, So they have a really interesting data set that I'm going to use. So in, I think, 2017, they set up a network of hydrophones, which are just underwater microphones. Um, It's called the Passive Acoustic Listening Station. And they have a number of these hydrophones that are deployed in Sarasota Bay and um, they're land-based. So they've always got power and they send data over a cloud-based system. So they're constantly collecting uh, recordings of of the underwater sounds there. 
And during the initial lockdown for COVID last April, um, the state of Florida was given a stay at home order. But the researchers there actually think that there was a lot more votes out during that period than there is usually. Um, so I'm hoping to find in, the, in these hydrophone recordings that there's a, a lot more boat activity and perhaps we can see how the dolphins uh, responded to that. Oh, that'll be super interesting. I am really sorry if you can hear or if anyone can hear my outside because it is snowing and like hailing like crazy here right now. So it heard us talking about acoustics and it was like, acoustics, I can do that. I can make it loud. Um, so <laughs> that is so cool. And it's really interesting that despite this like lockdown, there's higher boat activity, like hypothetically higher boat activity because probably people were just like, oh, we're sick of being at home, like time to go out on the water. And it'll yeah. be interesting to see how that kind of impacts the dolphins. Yeah, definitely. Because I remember sort of back in the spring, there was the, the media, there were so many reports of, you know, there were no boats, the ocean was silent and sort of the pollution in rivers was, they were so much cleaner and, you know, mm. all these um, sort of human impacts reduced. And so when I initially um, was looking into this project, I thought that would be the case, but they were like, no, we actually think there were more boats. So yeah, I think people we just sort of bored and there weren't many things you could do. And I think in Florida, boating was an, sort of an acceptable recreational activity yeah. during the lockdown. So I guess everyone just did that. <laughs> That's really interesting. There was probably like more personal crafts and less like um, commercial, like business ones out there, but more definitely more personal because people were just kind of like, oh, time to go boating. Like great time for it. <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah yeah I think it's a lot of small personal watercraft use so are you looking for your like project are you looking at how human like anthropogenic effects impact dolphins or like how are you using the acoustics yeah so um I'm obviously using the acoustics to sort of detect um ambient noise levels in the water so probably when there's more boats those noise levels will be, will be higher yeah. And I want to look to see if I can detect how many boats pass by a hydrophone station sort of in, in a given time period. And I'm quite interested in that because a lot of studies, um, there's, there's a lot of studies just out on coastal bottlenose dolphins and how they respond to boats, whether it's sort of recreational or, or whale watching vessels. Um, but they largely focus on sort of the distance away from the animals. And I, I think that's often reflected in, in guidelines of, of how boaters should act around dolphins. Yeah. They're told to stay so many hundred meters away or approach from a certain angle um but those sort of guidelines don't really take into account the amount of underwater noise that the dolphins are experiencing and it's so easy for us as a visual species to think that once a boat is further away it has less of an effect but the the noise they produce propagates so well underwater so they can still be really affecting the dolphins even though they're further away yeah so how would sound kind of affect dolphins like Tell us a little bit about like sonar and how that all works. Is that being like interfered with with the noise and what? Like, how is it negatively impacting the dolphins? Yeah, so dolphins are a really vocal species because obviously in the water you can only really see for a few meters or a few tens of meters before um, light doesn't really propagate and they can't see that far. So, um, acoustic sensors are, are, are really useful to them. So, bottlenose dolphins and other uh, cetacean species have a really wide range of um, their vocal repertoire. So dolphins are two most commonly known sounds um, are their echolocation clicks. So they send out um, these really high frequency clicks and they bounce back off things in front of them, whether it's the seafloor or prey. Um, 
and that echo that comes back to them, they can use that to build up a picture um, of their environment, just how we see our environment. Um, and they also use whistles. Um, whistles are more of a, a social sound. Um, so they use these to communicate between conspecifics. And sort of my previous work and what I want to use in, with the Star data as well is their signature whistles. So signature whistles, um, each one is individual. So each animal has its own unique whistle that sort of broadcasts its identity. And it's often used to sort of maintain group cohesion. So to keep the animals in, in contact and between uh, groups sort of like mothers and calves. Yeah, so one of the, the sort of vocal behaviors that I'm really interested in that I've done previous work on and that I want to use in Sarasota is a bottlenose dolphin signature whistle. Um, so they're really studied and they're really well known and each is, is individual. So each animal has its own whistle so they're used cool. um yeah they're used just to, uh, to maintain group cohesion so when when animals meet at sea they might sort of introduce each other with their signature whistle a, a little bit like a name they're passing it um to other animals so they know who they are cool. and they're used between groups like mothers and calves to, to remain in contact that is so cool that they're like the noise they make is their name which i guess like as i'm saying it i realize if i'm making the noise jill that's my name but that's so cool that dolphins have like within their communities names for themselves. What? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's I think insane. that, yeah, they, they, they offer, I think as well, a, a really great tool for research because you can sort of at these hydrophones, we can hear um, them vocalizing, but then if you pick up the signature whistle, you know actually which animal is present without even having to see them. So how can you differentiate between a signature whistle and some of the other whistles? Is it just one that's like repeated more or like, how can you tell which is a signature whistle versus a communication whistle? Yeah, so it's, um, it's thought that signature whistles make up about 50% of um, the dolphin's whistle repertoire. And the other whistles can really vary um, in what they sound like or, or look like on a spectrogram. And, and researchers aren't fully sure what the, the non-signature whistles are used for. Okay. Um, but the, the signature whistles, if you listen to them, they sound the same. They're very stereotyped. But mostly when I'm working with signature whistles, I actually look at them on a spectrogram, which just um, is a way we can visualize sound. So they have a really unique shape on the spectrogram so that when you look at it, it's, it's quite obvious. Um, and then sort of research groups build up these catalogs, just like you would have a catalog of dorsal fin shapes that are all unique. So they have these catalogs yeah. of signature whistles. Cool. That is so cool. So it kind of is like, the trained eye doesn't have a difficult time. Like once you know it, if you see that, you'd be able to be like, oh, like if it's one, if it's a dolphin that you're seeing quite often, you would just see that on the spectrogram and be like, oh, that's Mark. Like, you know this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So as I've been like working with, particularly like the population in Namibia, when you, you've you been looking at the recordings for a while, you start to pick out a whistle and, and you know which animal it is, which is pretty cool. That is so cool. I love that. I can't believe like dolphins, like we always know that dolphins are incredibly smart, but then as you like dive into it and talk about it more, it's like, no, they are like incredibly smart. Definitely. Yeah. And I think there's so much we just don't even know about them. So many of their sounds, we don't know what they're using them for. So I think there's still a lot to learn. So why is it that dolphins are so like understudied? Like we don't know a whole lot about them. So why is that? I think it mainly stems from just how difficult it, it really is to study them. I mean, if you compare them 
to sort of besides humans, we think cetaceans and primates, um, sort of the, the cleverest species. Um, it's a lot easier to observe a primate. They're sort of, you know, they're, they're on land all the time. You can just see them, whereas dolphins spend so much of their time under the water. You really don't know what's going on for the majority of their life. And um, I guess in the past couple of decades, the technology we can use to research them has just come on rapidly. So in terms of hydrophones and tags to that you sort of uh, stuck on the animal and they collect um, sort of very personal data for that one individual over a short period of time. So I guess, yeah, it mainly stems from how hard it is to, to study them and understand them. So we've mentioned hydrophones a couple of times now. When I picture a hydrophone, I've used some before, but every time I picture it, I picture just like a microphone that just dips in the water. That's all I can picture. So can you kind of explain hydrophones a little bit for those who might not know? Yeah, so a hydrophone is simply um, an underwater microphone, but there's obviously quite a lot more that I guess has to go into building a hydrophone. So um, they obviously have to be watertight, withhold, um, be able to withstand pressure. So once they're underwater, um, so they can still function. Um, and one of the big limiting factors in the use of hydrophones is, is usually the battery power. So if, if you're on land and you have maybe a microphone station listening for animals, they can maybe have solar power or a big battery. Whereas with hydrophones that are put in the water, it's obviously the way you power them that, that limits how long they can last. So how are they powered different ways? Like are some of them using solar power or is it kind of just like you plug it into the boat or whatever you're on? <laughs> Yeah, so they're often um, sort of if you use on a boat, you might um, like dip the hydrophone off the side. So you'd probably have some kind of um, power perhaps um, still on the surface. Um, with the hydrophones that I've used previously there, um, it's, it's called a sort of like a long-term hydrophone. So it uses passive acoustic monitoring, which literally just means um, the hydrophone is left in the sea, usually like anchored to the seabed with a buoy on top. Um, and they're just left there to collect data. And that's obviously um, quite limited by the battery that you can take out with it. Uh, the data that I'm using in Sarasota, some of their um, stations are actually solar powered. So they're land-based. Oh. And yeah, so the, there's a station on land with solar power. All that data travels from the station via a cloud-based system. And then the hydrophone is just sort of on a um, sort of a cord that goes in, into the sea. Um, cool. So they can listen. That is so cool. You yeah, must definitely. pick up some other things along like with the dolphins like you must get some really like interesting sounds on there. Yeah so obviously they pick up everything that happens um, in the environment so you can hear other boat noise you can hear perhaps um, other fish species that make noise things like snapping shrimp can be quite noisy which I guess people don't always expect. <laughs> um, you might pick up things like in particular areas really distant whale song um yeah and I, the group that I I'm working with in Sarasota actually on, on the PALS network they had the hydrophones out during um a harmful algal, algal bloom event in Florida a couple of years ago um and that work was actually really interesting because during the bloom event um the sound levels really went down as like organisms began to die because of the bloom and that was I thought that was a really interesting sort of yeah. way of demonstrating how much sound is in the environment yeah I feel like it's so like passive for lack of a better word like you just not passive like it's so constant almost that like when you're listening it's just the 
base level of like nothing is everything. So when you start Definitely, to notice yeah. things like drop off, then you're like, oh, it's like eerily quiet now. Yeah, I I always think of um, Jacques Cousteau, his, the, the film A Silent World, is, I think that's the name of it. And it, you know, it discusses all the, this amazing life that you can see under the water, but it, it completely sort of um, neglects all the amazing sounds that you can hear as well. And yeah. I think as we, as technology develops, so we can record um, these sounds better. We, we're getting a better understanding of, of what happens underwater. So why is it important to understand what's happening underwater in an acoustic sense? Like why is using the acoustics so important? I think because, um, as I said before, cetaceans and lots of marine animals um, use acoustics so much. Um, so to them, sounds um, sounds that are quite loud, such as boat noise, probably have a, a quite a big impact on them. So I think it's yeah. important that we understand um, sort of what normal levels are and how much, particularly the noise that we as humans introduce to their environment, how much that affects them. It really is. I actually have a video, I'll insert it like, but I'll show you in person right here that I shared, I found it one day and it was like the migratory path of a blue whale. So the blue, I don't know how well you can see it, but the blue whale is like the little dot, the blue dot, and then the rest of them is shipping. Hey everyone, editing Jill here. Emma and I recorded this on video, which I kind of forgot about that this is a podcast, that you can't see anything. So this video that I'm talking about here will be posted on our Instagram. So make sure to go check out the stories so you can see what we're talking about because I completely forgot that this is an audio podcast while we were recording it. So that is my bad, but I'm going to explain it my best, the best I can right here for you guys. And you can see it's yeah, like yeah. so hard. So like that blue dot, I'm just going to explain it again for like, you know, like <laughs> the blue dot is a whale that's like trying to kind of like get around the ships and the, all the red lines and red and orange lines are all the ships. So they're kind of like purposely avoiding the ships. And it's almost heartbreaking to watch because you see this whale like down up, like it just feels like it has nowhere to go. Like it's trapped in a sense. Yeah, definitely. I saw that video online as well. And I think it's so powerful because I don't think we quite realize how much um, disturbance we put into the environment of these animals. Um, but like, again, from that video, we see sort of where the boat is and where the whale is. But the sound that that whale is hearing is probably really intense compared to what it would be without those ships. Yeah, it's so like sound is so amplified in the water that even if you're a couple miles away, you can hear it. Like it's even... Um, are you, you're a diver, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know when you're under the water and like you'll hear a boat going by and you're like, that boat is right over top of me. And it turns out the boat's like miles away, but it sounds like it's right above you. Like it's yeah, insane. Yeah, it really is. I think that's a good um, way of explaining it actually. Yeah, if anyone's ever been diving or even if you've ever just been swimming in the sea and put your head under and the sounds um, that you hear underwater are completely different to on land. I remember being little and every time I would go to the beach, like if we were like down in Florida or anywhere, I'd go swimming in the water and I'd like put my head under water and I was like, yes, I can hear the fish talking to me because I was that weird little kid. And now part of me is like, maybe I could. There's so many things that I could have been hearing there that just, Definitely. it was the fish. I'm convinced it was the fish talking to me now. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And I think like, particularly we know a lot about dolphins and whales making noise but as you say species like fish that you don't think are probably that acoustically um sophisticated are being studied more now and we know more about the sounds of 
perhaps less populous species in the ocean. Yeah. I feel like cetaceans like whales and dolphins are so like, we're like, ah, yeah, they make sound because they're so loud and like easy to pick up on, especially like the dolphins whistles and the clicks are so like well known that even if you don't study dolphins, you know, dolphins make clicks and you have a basic understanding of like sonar like they send clicks out and it comes back to their melon and it forms a picture which genuinely I don't understand how they do that like I like the (laughs) fact that it forms a picture I'm like y'all are so cool but like you don't think about other species that make noise like the snapping shrimp you mentioned earlier I remember learning about that being like what something that small can make that big of a noise because they're so cool yeah definitely and one, some of the w- work I did when I was in Namibia was using um, acoustic to count animals and we used the signature whistles of bottlenose dolphins because they're, they're so well studied and well understood um, and you can use sort of a mark recatch technique to understand how many animals there are but when you, you look into the literature and see how many animals produce these individual calls um, there's things like African elephants, um, Amazonian manatees, green frogs, some birds, you know th- there's a really diverse um, set of animals that have quite sophisticated yeah. acoustics that we just don't really know about I think particularly birds and, and cetaceans are really well known but perhaps not as many other animals absolutely I find it so interesting how we kind of regard these animals as making like primitive noises when in reality their like languages could be so much more complex than our own like it could be so interesting to like know what they're saying yeah yeah definitely and I think we we are far from understanding what they're saying and I think one of those things about us trying to understand it often when you hear of, of um, dolphin sounds they're called maybe a chirp because it, it sounds like a bird chirp or a whistle because it sounds like a human whistle and we think of them in terms of, of us and, and how we use sound and perhaps we need to look at it in a different way. Absolutely it's kind of like when you're learning a new language you kind of want to learn the word for each word like a picture is this in French when in reality it's not the same word like there's no direct translation so in a completely different like I don't want to say language but like dialect or like vocal production there's not going to be a direct translation so it's going to be really interesting to see how people kind of like infer from this and I feel like we're going to get stuff absolutely completely wrong like (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And in, in, in the early days of sort of studying if dolphins do have language, it, there was a lot of captive studies and they would try and make the, do- the dolphin replicate a human sound. So they would say a, a word, maybe like a ball or a hoop of something that they were putting in the tank. And the dolphin would kind of have this weird attempt at saying it. And But then I think people started to realise that that isn't, that isn't really showing us what they're capable of. It's, it's just yeah. an imitation. It's, it's nothing to do with how, how they communicate. So there's been a definite shift, I think, in, in how we study their acoustic yeah. um, calls. Thankfully. Thankfully, a good shift. Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. And it's so interesting that they use their, like, language for, so, like, to communicate. And they can do it, like, interspecies, not interspecies. Is it intra or interspecies if it's the same? Is intraspecies if it's the same intra, species? Intra, yeah. Intraspecies, <laughs> like, within, like different pods but like they can kind of like communicate with one another like that's seen really often in whales where like an accent will be passed like one whale will pick up a new song from another and then it gets passed like throughout the world it's so cool that they can do that yeah 
definitely. I mean, two of the most studied um, species are, are in their acoustics are humpback whales and killer whales, and they both have really interesting um, ways of using their, their vocalization. So as you said, like humpback whales, they, they tend to have a song um, that the males use to attract females. And, and we've seen that the song can actually change through season. So perhaps the one humpback whale brings this new song into into an area and um actually they decide that that's a better song and that they start singing it and yeah. also in killer whales they're really quite sophisticated too they have um within their matrix line so all the descendants of one mother all have very similar calls so you can sort of tell the the pods and the matrix lines apart who would have thought that cetaceans have accents yeah it's crazy <laughs> i love it actually for the sonar this is a question like you I said earlier I don't understand the sonar so how do they like how does it work in their head like do they just like the sound bounces off and is it just like how close it is kind of paints the picture in their head like different does it sound different if it's coming back to them based on how far away it is like what's going on there yeah so um they're obviously they emit these clicks sort of straight in front of them to try and build up a picture of what's straight ahead um so as you say, they, they use the, the organ called organ? That, that's not the right word, is it? <laughs> is that the, right? the, <laughs> the organ, the melon? So, the melon. Um, they use the melon to direct these calls out in front and they'll bounce off something. So depending on sort of how how hard an object is, so say if it was um the hard sea floor in front of them, that would probably reflect more sound than something like a fish, um, that's obviously a bit softer. Um and these sounds come back to them and depending on how quick they come back obviously reflect how far away um, that object is so it's quite okay. sophisticated and I think as people that that don't use sound like that it's it, like I don't fully understand it either because it's so complex but I can't imagine like standing outside and just like yelling and like hearing it come back to me and being like yeah okay there's a tree in front of me like it just like blows my mind that they can do that they are so smart Definitely. And actually a really interesting fact I only learned the other day because we're currently doing a bioacoustics module is that some deaf humans have been able to um, sort of develop clicking so that when they click, they get these echoes um, that come back to them. And I did not know that at all. And I think one of our lecturers oh, used an example of, hang on, I think I just said deaf, I meant blind, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that would not help hearing the echoes. Um, so one of our lecturers used the example of um, someone that's blind that cycles and uses the clicks somehow to, to see where he's going Ooh. with sound. Yeah, which I really didn't know until about a week ago. <laughs> that is insane. So like humans can kind of adapt to do this. Not like adapt, yeah. but like eventually yeah. like we could do it if you, if I don't know how I'm trying to say this. We could do it if we needed to kind of thing. Yeah, definitely, which is just absolutely crazy. And yeah, it's pretty cool. That is so cool. So what makes dolphins so smart? Because we've heard tons of people, tons of things say dolphins are so incredibly smart. Why? Like how? Well, in terms of, I guess, a lot of animals are generally judged on how big their brain size is. Um, so I think second to humans, the biggest um brain size in relation to their body size is killer whales I'm pretty sure yeah. it's definitely a cetacean species um I think it's like and like if you, sperm whales killer whales are like both up there but killer whales are I think yeah one of them yeah 
definitely and I think that I like the sperm whale brain is the big, biggest brain on earth um Insanity. so uh, definitely so they're obviously really clever but again I just don't think we we really have um a clear picture of how how smart they are really I guess things like primates and gorillas and chimps and sort of those classic species that were they were really heavy heavily studied in maybe the 50s and 60s um we're sort of just catching up on that with with understanding just how clever cetaceans are that is so cool I can't wait to learn more about them and like see where the future studies go to see like how smart they actually are because I feel like all these cetaceans are just like watching us and like those clicks and songs that they're singing are being like wow these humans still haven't figured out what we're saying like come on like how long is it gonna (laughs) take kind of thing yeah definitely and I I love some of the funny memes that you find on Twitter um about sort of like humpback whales singing random songs and there's just a human trying to listen in to what they're saying um like, yeah so there's so much we don't know like this the whale that has like just a random song stuck in his head that he's singing and the humans are like it means he's looking for a mate like yes like, yeah yes. yeah definitely like <laughs> I love it. there's so much that we I guess kind of have to infer that they're probably doing but maybe we'll never know probably the way it's looking probably never <laughs> hopefully not but <laughs> now I love talking to other women in like the marine mammal science field because it is very competitive and just difficult field to get into and so I love talking to other women about it and being like okay how did you find this did you find it difficult to get into did you like so what's it like for you being a woman in marine mammal science or even just being in marine mammal science yeah so I I remember sort of back in in school when I was like 17 18 um some of my teachers did say like are you sure you want to do that there's really not many jobs and um you know you'll struggle to make money which which was fine because I feel like I I was always you know I guess if if you always know that then you're prepared and I was just really passionate about it so I did want to keep going um and I think I've worked with them, um, I guess, mostly in the projects that I've done, I've, I've worked with, with women. So um, my undergraduate project was supervised by Dr. Claire Embling at Plymouth. And I also, um, it was co-supervised by Dr. Tess Ridley, who runs a Namibian dolphin project. She's based in, in Cape Town. Um, and I also did a short um, job a couple of summers ago, at the British Antarctic Survey, and that was with Dr. Jen Jackson and uh, Dr. Haneke Bain. So weirdly I think most of the things that I've done have been with women um <laughs> which is it's good um and I one thing I would I would say I noticed but particularly as a woman is um when you sort of go on these the perhaps internships or you, you take volunteer positions um they're mostly girls that you're working with like it's it's not off that often that there's there's guys on those kind of um sort of lower level programs but then it, it when you look at sort of the higher levels like the people that are that are lecturers or professors and um, there's probably definitely more men than women um, yeah so there's definitely sort of I guess a a bit of a, a switch in in the gender of um scientists as you sort of progress but I, I do think that will change soon and there's great organizations like um women in marine mammal science who run sort of like a twitter and and every Wednesday they share um work done by women in marine mammal science and I think that's really great and it's really supportive and you can see this community of women sort of celebrating success of of other women so that's quite nice absolutely I love that and I love that it's kind of we have so many women like 
you mentioned you had like your undergrad like people you've worked under in projects and it's starting to be more of like a equally dominated field where like women do have a spot here and it's kind of nice to have those women to like look up to and be like hey this is so cool that I get to pick your brain about this because like you have the same kind of situation as I did as opposed to just like looking up and seeing all these like old white men as you usually do um but it's so cool that it's kind of starting to transition and I feel like females are just kind of like hey we're gonna we're gonna do it too okay like just take a second let us come in here and it's really (laughs) awesome yeah I think it is one of the fields where sort of maybe that gender balance is is shifting in, in the right direction definitely and I feel I feel like part of that might be because like girls are so like obsessed with dolphins and stuff when we're younger like I feel like we all went through that dolphin girl phase at least for a yeah. week where you were like you watched Flipper and you were like that's it I'm studying dolphins <laughs> yeah I do think it's kind of weird that even so young like being interested in dolphins is such a feminine thing and then like sharks were always like a a guy thing and it's really strange how that develops so young but um you know it kind of does make sense though like because like everyone thinks (laughs) the sharks are the big scary ones but really the dolphins are what mess you up they are the chaotic evil things (laughs) I love the whole like misconception about dolphins that they're like these sweet harmless just like oh we just love you it's like no they can be terrifying they're so cool I love them but I respect yeah. them because I'm also terrified of them yeah definitely like they have that um sort of false smile that's like the shape of their the face that makes them look like they're always just so happy but they can be pretty mean as well <laughs> they're definitely like swimming around just like I'll kill you just smiling yeah I'm like I love it yeah definitely now if you had any advice for anyone male or female pursuing a career in marine mammal science like what should they do to kind of pursue this career yeah I I think there's probably a few bits that I would say that probably would have helped me when I was younger so one of them is I guess find all the opportunities you can and 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 take them and I I think in this career as well it, it it sometimes appears that you have to have all this experience in these exotic places doing all this fancy research and I think as I've gotten older I've, you definitely start to realize that people say that are looking at your application for a course or for a job actually know that that's a bit of a problem in the field and um, they want to recognize it that I guess you're sort of proactive and, and you take opportunities and you try to like improve yourself as a, as a scientist and it's not necessarily about who has sort of the best looking um experiences on their on their cv um i would also say perhaps don't don't worry about what you think is the the stereotypical career of someone in marine science so i think it's easy to think that you know once you're 18 you go and get your bachelor's degree then you get your master's degree and you carry on working up like that but um particularly like like the sea mammal research unit in in say andrews where i'm studying now there's you know biologists there's people with backgrounds in physics or maths or engineering like there's so many ways to come into this career that I think um sometimes people don't realize yeah um yeah and actually my my final bit of advice is something that I think comes up more and more in this field and it's actually just to join twitter Um, yes definitely I think it's like the greatest platform like you meet so many people um there's things like job postings, PhD opportunities. And I think when sort of you're younger and maybe you don't have published research out there, you don't have um, maybe like a research gate or a website where people can, 
can get to know you. I think Twitter is a good place to do that where you can sort of share your interests with other people. Yeah, it really has made like networking just so incredibly easy. Like that's how I contacted you because you popped up on my Twitter feed one day and I was like, oh, that's a really cool tweet. And then I like stalked your profile for a little while and I was like, oh my God, I love this girl. Uh, and just like, <laughs> if you have questions about things, like if you want to know about dolphin science or like about dolphin biology or anything like that, you could literally just like search up the hashtag like dolphins or like dolphin studies and find someone and tweet at them be like hey I have questions about this and all of us who study things are pretty much like oh a chance to talk about what I love absolutely <laughs> like yes let yeah. me go so it's yeah, so I don't easy think to I've... network yeah definitely and I think it's cool when you you know when you hear about some exciting research or you've read a great paper and then if you I always go to like look that person up on Twitter and you, you get to hear sort of more about them and, and more about the, the fun side of their job and yeah, yeah. So it's definitely a great place it definitely takes kind of like the, not formality, but it feel makes science feel less stuffy and formal. Like you get to see people being like, oh, I made this for dinner tonight. And you're like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> you're a scientist and you also cook. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think it reminds me that, that everyone's like just a normal person really. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned like PhD opportunities. They pop up on my thing all the time. Like I'm starting my master's in a week or two. And every so often I'll get like this like master's opportunity. I'm like, oh, I should click on that. And I'm like, I... I have one like just wait for a <laughs> second but just it makes it so easy and accessible to yeah, like definitely. just be like hey I'm interested in a master's studying puffins and then like searching that up and finding someone who does that and be like hey do you have any advice do you have any opportunities you could tell me about like just networking it makes it so easy to connect and everything yeah I agree and I find like opportunities as you say for like masters or PhDs on Twitter that does not seen anywhere else so I'm not sure how you would find them if you, if you didn't yeah. find them I know it's so great like I love that piece of advice because it's such an underrated thing and if you had told me a couple years ago that like Twitter would have been my favorite social media I would have been like no that's like <laughs> so 2012 but now I'm like oh gotta check Twitter gotta see what's new in the SciComm community like and yeah. like the academic chatter hashtag like some of the things I will say some of the things people post about like especially about their statistical software I'm like i they're like, oh, does anybody know how to help with this? And I'm like, no, so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm that's so true. Here. <laughs> I think with things like statistics, like before, I've just asked like a, a question that's probably pretty basic. And it's amazing how many people reply and want to help you. So it's, it's oh, good. yeah. And it's like kind of like this thing of like no such thing as a stupid question, which makes me feel really good because when it comes to statistics, I have a lot of stupid questions. <laughs> And one of my best friends is actually going to get a shout out here. It used to be that if I had a question, my friend Jake would be like, I'd just be like, hey, how do I do this stats thing? And he'd be like, send it to me. And I'd be like, here you go. <laughs> and that's been my plan for, since I began my undergrad is I would do all the fun like data collection and all that stuff and send him my data. So Jake, if you're listening to this, um, get ready to get a lot of data because it's going to like, I'm still going to do that. But like to be able to ask for help on Twitter, to be like, hey guys, I don't know what to run. Hey, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Any recommendations for, and it's not even like, it has to be people that can help you. It can just be like, hey, where can I learn more about this? Where can I find information about this? And like, every, somebody's going to have something. Yeah, definitely. There's always an answer. <laughs> I love it. Well, I think that wraps it up. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. It was awesome to have you and to get to talk whales and dolphins. And I learned so much about dolphins and how smart they are today. 
<laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been good fun. <laughs>